This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. Hello, everyone. Today's interview is with Arthur Brightman from Tezos, and it's a fun interview, but it was a kind of a difficult one because, you know, uh, Tezos has raised, you know, $250 million in ICO, which is now worth at least $400 million bucks, and, you know, they also are having these big kind of um, these issues between Tezos and the Tezos Foundation, and they're like these three class action lawsuits being put against them, and so it's kind of it's kind of a touchy thing and a difficult thing um, when we actually dive in and talk about you know human governance because it's something that um, they're dealing with in a big way and is very difficult. So um, that, it's it's kind of fun to chat about these things, but this is kind of one of the first interviews that I've done that really pushes on some of these touchy subjects, um, and I and, uh, hope you enjoyed the version of it that I did, but we kind of need to stay a little bit at a meta level um, for, for legal reasons, and also because I wasn't, um, yeah, I'm not really sure how to push on these things. So that's the first note. The second note is, I mean, so we primarily talk about uh, functional programming and then governance, and on the functional programming side, I was really interested to learn more about functional programming as a mental model, um, and it was, this was really fun talking about this with Arthur because you know all, although all these like random tezos things are happening um, with all this money and whatever in the you know class action lawsuits arthur's just a, a dude who's really excited and building this protocol and is nerding out about functional programming stuff so it's really fun to do that um we chatted about a couple interesting things one is like this idea of like within functional programming thinking of things as from a type perspective, which essentially means do you take any random primitive and then you wrap it in an API that says, hey, here's how you interact with this. And that's both really helpful from the functional perspective where you can kind of imagine a given functional program as the amount of, or as this the set of APIs that it has. Um, but you can also think of this from the human perspective. Um, and this is something like earn.com where you say, hey, on earn.com, you could pay me $20 to have me respond to an email or whatever. So this API perspective is one that people in the blockchain space use a lot, not only from the functional programming perspective, but also from the human-to-human perspective, where you're essentially defining your APIs that you can be interacted with with respect to the world. Um, So that was interesting. And then the other thing that we talked about on the functional programming side that was pretty fascinating was around language and kind of mental models where uh, thinking about, we talked about how nouns are like object-oriented programming and verbs are like functional programming. And then um, Arthur had this concept of adjectives being similar to this APL language. Um, and so we were talking about that. And then we were also wondering, hey, but is would it be the case that monkeys, how would they name their things? Would they name them in terms of bananas and jumping around and whatever? And so that we got into some of these questions around how kind of the language that we use informs the mental models that we use. Um, so that was all fascinating stuff around functional programming, uh, and I'm excited to go deeper on functional programming things with other projects um, like Maker and, and Foam, because I think it is a really powerful mental model. And then we also talked about governance, and this is another thing that is a theme of my work these days, um, doing an interview with Eric Voorhees around Bitcoin governance that will release soon, uh, working with this kind of Ethereum commons around decentralized governance. And Arthur and I today, we chatted about, uh, from the like technical side, this idea of co-evolving governance systems. And, and people talk a lot about these uh, governance systems as, hey, you have like Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and they're kind of the fork allows for those two different kinds of governance to go forward, and like forking, it, forking is a way to govern. But we also kind of talked a little bit about the meta level there, where we say, hey, we should think about the coevolution between not just the coevolution of two different forks, um, but also the coevolution of governing systems themselves. So this is like forking as a governance system, coevolving with a self-amending ledger like Tezos as a governing system. And then we also talked about the human side of governance, and uh, Arthur was really arguing for like governance as process, and specifically he also talked about making sure that governance is also decentralized. And you know he said the irony of the situation is not lost on me. I think he's implying that you know Tezos Foundation and the, um, the centralized point of failure over there is, has been difficult for Tezos. So that was one side. And then we also talked about kind of transparency in governance. And I'm reminded of chatting with Luis from Aragon a couple podcasts ago, where he said transparency is the first key step to governance. And we talked about then with 
you know, Arthur today talked about memes and signaling, and the key thing that Arthur brought up was that you just got to make sure we have costly signals, um, kind of similar to Tlaib's skin in the game stuff, where we need to have costly signaling things when we're trying to do human governance here and trying to be transparent. So with that, um, definitely give it a listen if you're into the functional programming side or if you're into the governance side. And finally, before I begin, here are two quick things that I'm um, leading that you might be interested in. The first is I'm leading, co-leading the ETH Denver Hackathon, which is the next in the series of ETH Global Hackathons. Uh, you know, we're really working with the ETH Waterloo team. We expect 500 hackers, awesome speakers um, like Joe Lubin, William O'Gayar, Linda Sia. Uh, we have these awesome workshops, both on the coding side, things like cryptoeconomic primitives, bonding and staking, etc. And then also some great non-coding workshops, which are emphasizing as well, things like governance, complex system dynamics. Um, so if you're interested, it's February 16th through 18th, and you can go and learn more at ethdenver.com. And then the second thing that I'm doing that you might be interested in is what's called the Ethereum Commons Co-op. Uh, and this is a new project that I'm starting that essentially allows for more cross-project co-evolution and kind of facilitates that and then also tells the story about um, this new future that we want to live in that internalizes externalities. Uh, so if you want to learn more about that, you can go to my Twitter. And with that, I hope you enjoy this episode with Arthur from Tezos. Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. And in this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world. And so we have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're focusing on Series C, software systems. And specifically, we'll be talking about functional programming. And to do that, I'm very happy to int introduce Arthur Brightman to the show. Arthur is a co-founder of Tezos, a smart contract platform with a self-amending ledger and formal verification. Uh, Arthur, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to dive into functional programming. Um, so before we dive into the uber-functional side, uh, could you give us an overview of just like Tezos as a smart contract platform? Yeah, so um, Tezos is a smart contract platform, uh, like you said. So, you know, smart contracts are uh, electronic uh, agreements that live on the blockchain. And the idea being that they can receive inputs from the blockchain or from external system that uh, and, and calculate based on those inputs whether or not they should be making certain transactions. Uh, and so Tezos in particular um, is a self-amending smart contract platform, which means that it can change its own protocol. So if you have a an idea of how to make it better, you can submit that to the network and the network can just decide to adopt it. So it's a procedure which traditionally now is done by hard forks. Uh, you know, people on Twitter convince themselves that, yeah, we need to do this and then maybe they do it, maybe they don't. Um, and so it, it tries to bring a, uh, a formalized uh, governance model um, to that process. And the other aspect of Tezos, which might be of interest for functional programmers is that Tezos is written entirely, you know, Camel, a functional programming language. Cool. Um, yeah, so, and a little bit more on, so, at the high level, yeah, you have the self-amending ledger, so you can, it's like a different way to have a blockchain evolve over time instead of through forks. Um, and then on the formal verification side, so, so let's, let's kind of transition to that side for a bit. We, so Tezos has formal, is the goal is to have formal verification, and that is based in functional programming. And functional programming is something that I personally, and this is, this is the first podcast in this kind of series that I'm doing here around thinking about functional programming as a mental model or kind of like a framework. Um, and there's a bunch of different projects in the space that do this, um, that use functional programming. Maker uses it, and actually they're like white paper slash purple papers written um, with the functional programming language. You have the like R-Chain Co-op and like Vlad Zamfir's Ghost, um, which are these new proof-of-stake implementations, which are heavily like informed by functional programming. You have Foam, and of course today we're talking with Tezos. So Arthur, could you kind of give us a high-level overview on like how you guys use functional programming specifically around formal verification? Okay, so the the, the first thing to notice, I and, and, uh, it's an example I like to give, is that a blockchain itself is a form of functional programming. Mm -hmm. So there's not a single definition of what functional programming is. Some people will say that uh, functional programming is having function as first-class values. Some people include strong uh, static typing. Uh, inside functional programming, uh, some people say it's about lazy evaluation. So there's many um, there's many different definitions. Or but one that is common is the lack of mutation. If you're not changing, if your variables are immutable, you know, mm -hmm. changing them 
then this is functional programming. Now, if you have, um, if, but sometimes you want to have something that changed. So maybe, you know, if you're writing accounting software with functional programming and you have a value that changes over time, how do you present that change? And so one way this is done uh, typically is to, instead of actually uh, going in your memory and erasing that bit of memory and, and, and writing something else, what you do is that we represent that as a linked list. So you represent that as a list of changes. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to represent mutation in an immutable way. And this is exactly what and th that approach uh, is called a state monad. And this is exactly what uh, what the blockchain is doing in some sense. You know, we want to represent the state of all the balances. So in Bitcoin, that might be the state of all the uh, UTXOs. Uh, that's the unspent outputs. Um, and you represent that not explicitly, but implicitly as a series of chain operations. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how we use it, well, you know, we implement um, the, the, the blockchain on, on it. I would say some of the benefits we get out of it is, uh, well, uh, we rely heavily on the typing system to enforce properties about uh, our ledger. We, realize, uh, we rely heavily on a module system of OCaml for encapsulation. So there's a general principle that we're trying to build um, the code in layers. And so you have very low layers that deal with, um, you know, networking, serialization, deserialization. And at each layer, we build upon abstraction and abstraction until we just call very general function on very general objects. And so we don't have the possibilities that you might have in other languages of shooting ourselves in a foot. Mm -hmm. You know, when, you know, once you get something like an amount of test tokens, that amount is not the same thing as an integer. It's its own type with its own function operating on it. And it's not something that, um, and, and the only way you can access it is, is, through this, um, is through these functions. So it prevents it prevents a lot of, uh, it prevents a lot of, uh, of bugs. You know, when, when the team initially worked on, uh, on a Tezos ledger after about four months of uh, development and that initial team uh, being uh, Benjamin Canou, Grégoire-Henri, Pierre Chambard, they worked on it for the you know, first four months. They ran it, and after you know a couple, maybe uh, like half an hour of fixes, the thing was running. Yeah. Uh, which you know, it's 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 very um, it's very hard uh, to obtain this kind of result in other languages. Typically, you find that you have a lot more bugs. So the compiler is helping you catch a lot of bugs, you know, before they uh, before they happen. And in fact, you know, if you, in, you you were talking about formal verification, if you go further. Um, the you know the, the idea of uh, of proving programs is extending the is, is extending the types even further and trying to put all the properties that you want in your program in the types. So we don't quite do that, but we you know we push in this direction. Hmm. So yeah, I guess that there's you start to talk a lot about the um, kind of the general side of things. I love the blockchain as functional programming itself, especially yeah the. You know the values in, in 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 functional programming land. I was watching this great video earlier today where they're like, "Hey, the word variable in functional programming land is not great." You know, we assume that's instead of value, an immutable value, um, instead of assuming that everything can be varied. And so, like you say, and and when you're trying to change an immutable value, instead of changing the value itself, you just do a list of the kind of the actions um, that have been done to that value as a way to know how it's changed over time. So I really like that as a as a concept. Um, and I've not, I want to dive into those layers that you talked about in a second. But just to double check, how much does, uh, in my mind, the functional programming nature of Tezos is kind of necessary for some of the formal verification that you guys are looking to do. Is that correct? Or could you talk a little bit more about the formal verifying side? So I wouldn't say it's necessary, but it is helpful. Uh, so in practice, you know, you can formally verify anything. Uh, you could take a piece of C code, you could take a piece of assembly, and as long as you have a clear model of what the computer is supposed to do with it, then you can verify that it's doing the right thing. But it's not going to be the same amount of effort to verify that a piece of assembly is doing what you think it's going to be doing than to verify that a piece of functional programming is doing what you want to be doing. So the language of proofs is, is one of mathematics. And so the closer your functions are to mathematical functions, the easier it is to make proofs about them. Got it. And the closer it is to like a weird machine with CPU and memory and all of this stuff, the closer it is to that, the harder it is to make uh, to make proofs. So you know we um, we try to make it as easy as possible. And from a very practical standpoint, um, one of the most uh, advanced uh, proof assistants today is a Cock proof assistant. Mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, OCaml was developed to be. The language to was a language in which Cock would be written. So Cock is written itself in OCaml, and when you write a proof 
uh, in Kotlin, well, the next thing you can do is you, you, you can write a proof that a certain program is possible, and then you can extract that program as a piece of OCaml code. So one thing we can do is write some write some Kotlin code, extract um, uh, uh, you know extract OCaml code, and then use that code. So now we, we know it's proven. We can also prove existing mm-hmm. code. Um, using something called CFML, so you can actually take, take existing OCaml code and use Kotlin to prove it. So there's a lot of um, interoperability with proof assistant that we uh, we have. Now it's it's not something we've done on a large scale at, uh, at this point. We've had some formal verification efforts around some smart contracts, but so far we haven't actually uh, dived in and for and, and try to formally verify the uh, the Tezos code. It's something that I would absolutely. Uh, like to um, like to do as we go uh, as we go forward. It, it you know it will give confidence into the uh, reliability of the of the protocol, and I think in general anything that's you know consensus critical or um, critical to the security of contracts should be verified. Yeah, got it. Yeah, and I love the um, my favorite like metric for determining if that's true or not is. Um, dollars per line of code. So for something like a rocket ship or whatever, it's like, hey, if you have 10 lines of code and the rocket ship is worth $10 million, you know, that's a million dollars per line of code. Um, and so with that as a as a context, things like ICOs, things like more intense security things, it's like, hey, you got to make sure this code is right to formally verify it. Um, using if, you're, if your dollars per line of code is high, then using a formally verified system is correct. Yes, yes, and, and and you can actually compute that. You can actually directly compute that for uh, a lot of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and you'll and you'll see that the value per line of code is rather high. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh my god, the attack space is too large. Um, <laughs> and, and and it's even higher for for smart contracts. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. So, I guess thinking about um, so there's there's the Tezos system, and I think that I do want to take a little bit of a step back and and think about um, functional programming as kind of a mental model and and. And I don't, and this is, this is an unformed thought that I'm kind of exploring with Arthur here, but like, you know, there are various other mental models that you can use in the world, whether it's like the lean iterative mental model to understand your customers, or whether it's, you know, a mental model for like Bayesian reasoning to kind of help you understand and predict future events better. And I feel like there's some kind of functional programming um, mental model here. So I guess, Arthur, does that, um, and, and let's, let's go actually with a specific question here around these words um, that are used within this model. And so, you know, one that we used here was like using the terms values instead of variables to denote that they don't vary, that it's like, an immutable, you know, value or whatever. Are there other kinds of language changes that you have as a result of the functional programming mindset? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, man, I don't know. Um, yeah, we talk more about values and variables. Um, so I, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm thinking of the Haskell community, which yeah, is um, perfect. which is using a, which is, but I'm not I'm not a Haskell. You know, the thing is, is you know, I I'm, I, I'm not a, I wouldn't call I, I'm not an expert in uh, in functional programming. I, I I sit around experts and I've seen experts and I admire them and I understand you know from an engineering point of view the value of uh, of having it and so I'm an ardent proponent and defender of it. But yeah, so the the, the Haskell community has borrowed a lot of language from uh, category theory, for example. Mm. So they have all of all of these uh, and, and all, of, all these are different the different names. I don't pretend to uh, that I don't pretend to understand. Um, what is category I, I, theory, by the way? Just to go on that for a second. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's very uh, <laughs> it's this very abstract branch of uh, uh, mathematics developed by Grothendieck, uh, which talks about categories, and then you have uh, uh, rows between categories, and it's this very very general branch that kind of talks about mathematical structure. It is fairly fairly interesting. Uh, It does seem to map to a lot of computer science concepts. There is some controversy about how useful it actually is to understand computer science concepts. But I, it is definitely something to uh, to look into. There's a very good um, there's a very good tutorial online, which is category theory for programmers. And so if you know if, if, if listeners are interested in learning a bit about that, and and, and they have a tendency to uh, and, and you know and, and they're coming at it from the angle of programming, yep. uh, I recommend it. I, I I thought it was interesting. I, I don't know how uh, relevant it is uh, in terms of the mental models. So, yeah. Um, the way I like the way I like to think about it is that you have a value and then you just like keep passing that value through function and this you know and just just progressively 
uh, changing it. It's almost like passing a hot potato where you have mm. this thing that you transform it, pass it to something else, it's going to do something else with it, and so on and so forth. It, it, you know, instead of just like, I'm going to put my value here, and then I'm come back at, and then I'm going to come back at a later time, and I'm going to change it. You just keep your value, and then you just keep passing it through different things, and then you know, adding bits to it, removing bits to it until you have your results. Mm, I like that as a yeah as a metaphor for it. it's kind of a hot potato. You're passing the value along. Well, just to double check there, it feels so that 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 aligns with my understanding of functional programming in the sense that you just have a bunch of these different functions with you know direct input and output, and that's primarily what you're using. But it kind of doesn't agree with me in that like that value then starts to sound like a variable, um, you know, because it's being passed along and it's being changed or whatever. Is that, I feel like, is that a tension that I'm feeling or? I mean, yeah, there there is a tension, which is that I I believe that our universe is is fundamentally not functional. Um, (laughs) So, and and, and there's something deep, uh, I think there's something deep here about, in physics, you know, whenever you have a mutation of a uh, of a variable, you know, whether it's in a, uh, even if it happens in a program, um, it's in terms of thermodynamics, it's a dissipative process, which means that you have uh, to be putting out a little bit of uh, of heat uh, when you do that. Whereas when you do functional computation in practice, you're not actually doing anything. You're not actually affecting the universe until you actually like print out the result, or you you actually have a a side effect, which is going to dissipate heat and change, you know. Uh, and change history, but like you know, all of our machines—they are—they're um, largely—they um, are—they they largely use um, mutation. Now, it, it's it's slightly different if you start, you know, thinking in terms of sci-fi. Uh, some people have thought of making um, reversible computing, so the circuits who actually uh, consume even less energy because they're purely functional. You just you know push your inputs. Uh, in one place, and then it just cascades through the system. You get your you, you get your output, and you haven't you, you haven't actually like changed anything. You've just rearranged the bits uh, of the system. But it's not a very um, it's not a very natural model. I think that um, instinctively we tend to think in terms of uh, of mutation because in, in in everyday life it is what we do. You know, you uh, you grab something, you put it in a cupboard, and then take it back from the cupboard. So it's in one place. The place changes. Um, People think uh, people think in terms of um, in their daily lives in in terms of mutation, but in terms of mathematics, I think it's a, it's a language that's closer to uh, mathematics. Yeah, yeah. I think that what you said there is the the side effects version of things, and that's like kind of a key part of the functional programming mindset, which is just like you have the immutable values or whatever you have. Um, essentially no side effects in the system so you can understand a given piece of code and say, hey, I'm looking at this this function or this given part of the program and I don't need to think about all the other things that may have happened before or after it. I can just understand this and this specific thing because I don't I can kind of ignore side effects. Um, so there's like that yeah. side of things. There's the immutable values um, side of things. Could you talk a little bit more about types? Because I think that types um, and, and, and how types are used in functional programming is another surprisingly powerful part of the mindset yeah so i mean uh sometimes when you when you speak about types people think well well you know like how many you know it doesn't seem like an error i would have you know why would it just confuse a string and an integer you know that doesn't sound like a like a very serious bug but in practice you do catch um you do catch a lot of bugs this way but you have to use you know you can use types aggressively it's not just between a, st- a string and an integer um so one thing that you can do for example in a camel is you have a module system uh, and this module lets you hide type. So, for example, you can have a module for a quantity of token. Okay, and so inside of it, you're just going to implement it as an integer. But from the outside, it's going to be this type that's up. Oh, it's a quantity of token. I don't know anything about it. And so, if you want to do anything with it, like add a few, uh, add it to another quantity, or you know, take it out of an account and put it in another account, then you have to go. Um, then you have to go through that module, mm-hmm. and that makes things um, and, and and that guarantee that gives you the guarantee at compilation time that hey, I'm not. There's no way for me to change those amounts or to do anything with them without calling the functions in this one place. It gives you an invariant, and so that's very helpful uh, if you want to prove properties about your program because you know that if you have to prove this property, you only have to look in one place. And the same goes with not having mutation. If you have mutation, if you depend on some big global state where many things can be changing. You can look locally at a function and not know what it does because it depends on this big global state, which could be anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're not depending on this big global state, you can look locally at what a function does and says, yes, this is correct. I, because I know that you know for all inputs that it gets, it's going to get the right outputs, and I don't have to reason about this big uh, global state. Yeah. And uh, so 
that type in some sense allow you to do the same thing, which is to really focus locally on uh, on what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, I like that. So I'm, I'm pulling that out as kind of maybe a something that's part of this mental model is the ability to deeply concentrate on a given local state without needing to try to keep in the rest of the complex system in your mind. Would you would you kind of agree with that, that that might be one thing to pull out from this yeah. mindset? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it really allows you to, 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 to make sure that local to make sure that you only have to check local properties in order to uh, ensure global correctness. Yeah. And I think I mean the the one about the quantity of token versus integer one I think is a really important point which is that hey when you want to be adding to someone's account or whatever in in the Tezos ledger or something you can't just put an integer in there. You need to actually go through this wrapper around an integer essentially which is this quantity of token type wrapper and it has its own specific APIs that you need to work through and if you don't work through those apis then you can't interact with it um so yeah. Kind of, yeah so that version of things which is like an api based wrapper around uh more like general types allows it i guess and do those types start to then layer on top of each other and you talked about that a little bit before with like the layers that you have in the in the tezo system could you talk more about that layering and these wrappers on wrappers yeah, so for example, one thing we might have is, so there's a, there's such a thing as the representation of an amount. That's how is that going to be, you know, if we have an amount of uh, test tokens, how is that going to be serialized in JSON? How is it going to be serialized binary? How do we deserialize it? So there's something that that is a representation of that. And then there's a higher level, which is, okay, now we're going to have a concept of an amount, but below that, it's going to use this uh, low-level representation. And then on top of that, so we might have the representation of an account. Now, an account has some uh, tokens in it. But once we have the abstract representation of an account, we don't want to do anything with tokens anymore. We don't want to be adding to, you know, only the account is going to be able to add tokens or, 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 or remove tokens. So at each layer, we keep restricting the API so that... Um, all of the, you know, so, so, so that each layer only has access to the minimum amount of functionality that it needs. Mm, yeah, I like that. The At each layer, you restrict the API such that it has the minimum. So you're essentially trying to um, decrease the amount of surface area or attack area or API calls at every given um, layer. Because if you have exactly. more, that means, yeah, like, why, do you, why would you have more than you need? Okay, I like that. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit Shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. So one thing that I just want to check on here is how do you, so another way to view, another way to, that I like to view these mental models is by comparing them to other mental models. And so um, I guess, how do you, Arthur, see, there's the functional programming mental model, but then there's kind of the object-oriented um, mental model that most of us programmers these days are used to. How do you kind of see those two mental models as different or similar? Oh, I. I mean, in 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 the object model, you definitely it's all about mutations because you're going to be uh, calling these methods or, or or sending these messages to the object, and it's going to change its its, its internal states uh, in response. Um, you know, a, a lot of the time you can. Um, you, you can so OCaml has objects. We don't uh, we don't really make use of them because we try to keep the protocol as. Uh, as functional as possible. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I may be saying something that's going to make people scream. I don't know, but so I, I found that pro- I found that programming with uh, modules in a camel is, is is kind of similar to template programming in uh, uh, in C plus You find a lot of uh, you find a lot of commonalities. And in fact, you know, if you a module is essentially uh, it, the typical module is typically going to have one type that is hidden and then a bunch of function on, on that type. And so if you, you could almost consider that like a package of, you could almost consider these methods, but then instead of the method, you know, um, modifying an existing object, you just call it on some value and it gives you another value and the other one is garbage collected. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's not that different conceptually. Um, there's no concept of, 
uh, inheritance for modules, but there is a concept of functors. So they're different from the Haskell functors. The functors in OCaml are, I have a, you know, I have a module, I can parameterize it with an other module and create a third module uh, using that. There's some interesting philosophical questions. I mean, I, 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 um, in object-oriented programming, that I, I don't claim to have the answer to. Um, I, I, I just find find it fascinating to read about. I, I don't know if you, see, um, you know, the one about the circle and the ellipse, and whether a circle is a kind of uh, a circle is a kind of ellipse that has both of its axes the same size, or an ellipse. Uh, but but you know, but but if you say that, then you do some properties. So inheritance doesn't actually uh, quite mm. capture what you. Uh, what you want in many uh, in many cases, it's um, in the end. I think it becomes more about um, empirics. You know, in, in practice, what does uh, what does object oriented programming actually buy you? And I think the one thing that it does buy you is encapsulation. I mm -hmm. think that's the one that's the most important thing that you're getting out of it. And you know, that's something we make heavy use of uh, with the modules. Got it. So, yeah, object-oriented programming buys the encapsulation, and and but you're still using that in OCaml, but with a thing called modules. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Yeah. Another way that I like to think about this difference, and this, I think, it's kind of back to the, the, the what you were saying earlier about side effects and how people conceive of the universe and like laws of thermodynamics and and you know thinking about object-oriented program. I mean it says it in the name it's like it's object oriented aka noun oriented programming um versus like functions which are kind of verbs um is there any is there <laughs> is there any yeah. power to that pattern match or what does that does that have any yes uh, completely um there's a very interesting thing um there so um i used to be at uh i spent some time at morgan stanley and they use um uh, the q programming language and the q programming language is a version of k and K is a successor itself of APL. Mm. Uh, so it's an array-oriented programming language. It's concatenative. It is very strange if you've never used APL or, or, or J or any of these languages. It's very unlike uh, what many people have used. It is a lot of... It, so it, it is a bit of a write-only language, uh, but it's a lot of fun. And in this language, they have a concept of adjectives. Mm. Uh, and they have really good adjectives. So mm. one adjective is each. So each is kind of like a map. And so when you want to map a function to a list... Uh, you could think of map as an adverb, but you also could think of it as an adjective, which is how do you want, you know, you apply F, but to each of these elements. So it modifies the verb, the mm. function, so that it works slightly differently. And they have each left, each right. So, um, yeah, I, I think verbs, adjectives, and uh, and noun matches fairly well to um, to these concepts. Yeah, I like that. That's a great, uh, yeah, so this array pro. Oh, oh see, I go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, the question I have then is... Um, is it the case that the concepts of noun and verb and adverbs are important and therefore we find them both in human language and in programming? Yeah. Or is it that we are limited when we program our, by our, our, our own human uh, biases mm. and so we end up programming in a way that makes it possible for us to think about? You know, it's like if you, mm. if you, if you were designing a programming language for monkeys, maybe everything would have to be expressed in terms of, you know, jumping from a branch to branch <laughs> yeah. and throwing fruits yeah. because that's, you know, because that's what you're really good at. It's like, okay, I, so I throw the fruit from this place to that place. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, I once wrote a, um, a big piece of software with microservices. So it's, it's a bunch of processors talking to each other and I gave them human names because it made it easier for me to think about, you know, we're very good at thinking about, our brains are good at thinking about human interaction, people talking to each other and doing, uh, and doing several things. And so maybe our programming language are just reflecting the ways our brains are built as opposed to um, there being a commonality. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a, a fascinating question that in general is true, which is this, it's both connected to this tech society loop, which is how does the, the tech that we're building and how we think of it, how does that connect to the society that and the things that we imagine and how does that connect back to the tech? And what you're saying is a similar kind of micro version of that, which is like, hey, in our own minds, like the language that we use and how our brains are wired, how does that affect how we kind of perceive of things and how does, you know, the language that we use there kind of affect back our minds? I feel like, and I, and I love the version of an adjective there, and I just want to kind of spit it back to you, which is, yeah, that 
of something like map, um, where you take these given, a bunch of given values and then change them, that's essentially kind of like an adjective where you say, hey, take this thing and add this kind of modifier to it or a descriptor of it um, that kind of gives more texture to it as a thing. So I think I think that that is powerful. And, and the other thing, I'm, I'm just kind of blabbing now, but the other thing that this makes me think of is in reading kind of MakerDAO's um, purple paper, one of the things they talk about at the top is how how powerful it is to be able to, through this type stuff that you're talking about, to link technical, like programming level things with kind of financial system things to say, hey, these technical terms like are essentially equal to these financial terms. So I think that that's just kind of a thing with functional programming in general, just being able to link two kind of concepts from two different worlds and say, no, they're the same in this given set. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I, I said something stupid. I, I said adjective, but I meant adverb because it modifies a verb. So adjective mm. modifies a noun, adverb modifies. Okay, so it's an adverb. Sorry about that. Just a small correction. Yes. Well, so like, let me let me double check on that. When you say um, that it's an adverb, when you say you say map is an adverb, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, though I kind of see it as a you have the a noun in there possibly, which is a uh, which are any of these like values and then you're essentially or I guess could you tell me more about why it's an adverb not an adjective <laughs> uh, because when you say map f list mm-hmm. I think that map modifies the fun I mean I mean you know it's debatable but I think that map modifies the function more than the list it's mm. not saying applies a function to this thing to this list that's not quite a list because I'm using map it's like apply to this list this thing that's not quite a function because I transformed it. I transformed it from something that applies to one argument to something that applies to this list of arguments. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. Okay. So maybe a, maybe an adverb is like a function that takes a function and turns to you another function. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, I feel like, yeah. So I think that we could go a lot deeper on this kind of like connecting words that we use in other mental models to words in functional programming and connecting them. But I'd like to ask one other question kind of diverted away from this in just the functional programming land generally. How do you guys use, like, so you're using OCaml. Um, I guess, why are you using OCaml or how does it relate to some of these other functional programming languages? Uh, why are we using OCaml? Um, because I think OCaml is a great. Uh, I think OCaml is a great language. First of all, uh, it has really good performance. So it's um, it's there's a very nice uh, trade-offs in terms of how pure the language can be versus how fast um, the compile programs in uh, in OCaml are. So I think that's a uh, that's a big advantage. Um, it's also a very popular language in France, and I think France has a great pool of engineering talent. And so I think that's a um, that's a good match for uh, for writing something like a uh, like a blockchain. The other big uh, one other big um, pro- uh, functional programming language is uh, of course Haskell, which is more popular in uh, in the U.S. Hmm. And so the claim, you know, and and I, I'm not I, I don't want to start um, uh, language wars. <laughs> The claim OCaml programmers will make is that yes, Haskell can be fast, but not if you write idiomatic Haskell. Whereas if you write idiomatic OCaml, it will be faster. So, yeah, I have not evaluated those claims. I think both are great languages, um, <laughs> but you know, I I, I learned uh, I learned myself uh, uh, OCaml at, um, in in college, and I really uh, I, I really like it as a language. Got it. Yeah, and I think that that geo specific saying, hey, it's a language that's used a lot in France. I think that that is a very valid point, which is just like, hey. Wherever your given you you know community is, if there's a language there that a lot of people use, use it. You know that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think I feel relatively good about functional programming. Thank you for exploring some of these concepts with me um, around <laughs> the verbs and the nouns and and you know uh, entropy and those kinds of things. So with that, let's kind of take a step back and talk about another side of of this and with Tezos around governance and specifically yeah. around. Um, you guys have your self-amending ledger from like a, a programmatic perspective, um, but then you also have the kind of human-to-human things, and we don't need to dive too deep into the kind of things that are happening between you guys and the Tezos Foundation or whatever, but could you give yeah. me at a high level what how you're kind of viewing um, governance um, either at the programmatic level or at the high level? Um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about how you're thinking about that. Well, one of the first thing is that, like, I'm that that, that that I'm glad is that one of the views um, in the Tezos paper, which was very controversial at the time, 
is is now accepted as obvious and so i'm just i'm just very very glad that's the case um if you go back to 2014 there was this um there was this very prevailing uh, view that bitcoin was just mathematics it was completely controlled by the rules of mathematics therefore it was imperious to human politics and human affairs mm. and all of that and you know with the recent <coughs> block size debate and the hard forks and you know bitcoin cash and, and segway 2x and all of these things um, you know, even the more hardcore proponents uh, of Bitcoin understand that, yes, you know, it's not just mathematics, there's a human element because what's going to determine the branch that wins is not, you know, it's it, it, it's not a law of mathematics that say, yes, this is going to be the winning ledger. Mm-hmm. It's going to, so, you know, in the best case scenario, you're going to say, well, um, the best branch from a technical standpoint will win and this is what matters. Uh, but more realistically, it's it you know it's it, it's it's political games. It's trying to say who is going to sway, uh, who's going to sway the collective understanding of what Bitcoin is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know you, you see that Bitcoin Cash call itself Bitcoin Cash early on, and then they they, they can they backpedal by saying, "Well, Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin." Because the minute the minute you're not calling yourself Bitcoin, you 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 basically admitted defeats in a fork. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the branch that wins is a branch that is perceived to be the legitimate successor. Yeah, do and you, so this is co- and this is completely human. Yeah, sorry. I was just gonna say, do, do you? Um, what was the thing that you wrote in that white paper in 2014 that is now taken as truth today? Also, oh, the, the the Tezos white so the Tezos white paper is more like a, a description of the um, uh, of like the, the technical details of how um, Tezos can be implemented. The Tezos position paper made the case that um, what really controlled a ledger was not just its rule, its internal rules, but also the politics around hard mm, forks. Got it. That it was that, that that hard fork politic was very crucial, or um, and, and how it's incorporated innovation. Like when they need to, when they face innovation, does a hard fork is innovation happening outside? And um, that was the uh, I think that was a the big insight. Got it, got it. That makes sense. From a hard fork perspective, one thing that I'd like to maybe push back on is, do you, I mean, there's this question within the blockchain community as is, is, are forks a, you know, a feature or a bug? And I think there's a lot of good arguments to say, hey, in fact, these blockchains should be forking a bunch um, and then and, and create these all these different kinds of organisms that can just like, kind of go forth and co-evolve with each other. But with Tezos, you guys are maybe saying, hey, let's maybe not you know, to have these hard forks. Um, what are your thoughts on on that kind of pushback? So, I think that the, 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 there's nothing wrong with a fork per se. The problem is that in most in most in most cases, people understand that it's not just going to be a competition. There's going to be a winning fork. So there's there is, some people will say, hey, you know, we have two versions and they can do two different things. But in 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 practice, there is a lot of there there is a lot of overlap. Uh, which is why you know you're not going to see a lot of people saying it's great Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash can coexist. I mean, sure, you know they, they can and they don't have to go at each other's throat, but uh, in, in practice they they are trying to um, to address the same use case. And the no one really want you know no one really wants to hard fork. People wants to just uh, decide what's gonna what's gonna happen in uh, in the network. No one no one wants to be uh, the, the, the splinter cell. When they do they they, they do that in the hope that they're gonna be the main chain, the one that people actually use, the one that capture you know ninety percent of the uh, of the interest. Um, and so the problem is if it w- you know if, if it was just as easy as forking and then made the base branch win. It wouldn't be a problem, but I don't think that the economics of it are such that the best branch is going to win in general. I think the the branch that looks the most legitimate <laughs> is the one that's going to win, not necessarily the the best one. Yeah, yeah, and that goes back to like the human side around like um, the the politics and things like that. I think that no matter what, there's an evolutionary perspective here, which is that hey, we should both have hard forks as a way to you know evolve blockchains and we should have some kind of tezos style self-amending ledger as a way to evolve blockchains and they will kind of co-evolve with each other those two kinds of evolution systems and we'll see how and and different ones will be better for different use use cases and whatever 
I guess so. So we kind of talked about the kind of the the more technical side there. What about so when you think about like the human side, and this is something that I was talking with Eric Voorhees about as well, which is like, how do you think about there's different stakeholders and there's different, and how should people kind of like signal that they're trying to do what's good in the world? Like, how do you think about from the human side? How how would you break down um, kind of how governance should happen at the kind of the human level? Hmm. That's a difficult question. Um, yeah, governance. <laughs> it's difficult. I, I like. I what I'm convinced is there need to be on-chain procedure uh, mm. for helping uh, for helping that. But go, I mean, governance as a, uh, a, 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 a at a human level is uh, is as old as is, a, is is as old as time. Yeah. Uh, in general, I think that what works well is uh, is generally process process and institutions. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is what protects you. And so, you know, there's an example in the US and, and people sometimes say, well, you know, the constitution is not self-enforcing. But in, in some sense it is because there's a, there would be a big stigma in, 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 in trying to um, like blatantly and very overtly uh, go, in, uh, go against it. So institutions can create shelling points that where, where people are going to coordinate their activity based on this known uh, mm. on this known challenge points, and I think this is how you um, I think this is how you get peaceful uh, peaceful governance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. I mean, that's an interesting. In some ways, your answer to that one, I was like, hey, so what's like on the human level? How should we like think of ourselves as human governors? And you're like, well, the best way to do it is through on-chain procedure, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, go. Mm -hmm. yeah, and of course, decentralization is also a big one. I mean, you know, this is, a, this is the one that everyone is pursuing in this space. Mm. There is this idea that if we have decentralization, if we have many more nodes in the network, then, you know, we're not going to be a subject to the feeling of, of, of any single human being. Yeah, yeah, I think that that makes sense that there's a having decentral yeah, if if you have a centralized point of trust or failure or whatever then that can be kind of uh, an issue as well. I guess do you think yeah. or, uh, and, and you know the, the irony of the of the situation is not lost upon me obviously, but um, <laughs> we do we're doing our best. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really know nothing about it. So good luck with that. Um I want to ask one more question on it which is um is yeah. there a so thinking about one thing that I think of in this space, and this kind of gets into like weirder zones here, but like how can people in the world, when, they're, when you're trying to govern and you're trying to yeah. understand who should be – like what is – like certain people have these certain arguments. Certain people have these other arguments. Certain What are these people's goals? What are their intentions? Um, and something that I'm personally trying to do is like trying to show to the world with like these weird like – pledges to decentralized power slash these weird like decentralization memes trying to like show like hey here's why i'm in the game to do things mm -hmm. and as a way for people to kind of like either trust me or not trust me or see how we're aligned or not aligned how do you think about like what are the things that humans themselves can kind of signal to each other as we're kind of playing these governance games mm. Well, I mean, part of the uh, part of the idea in, in, in this blockchain is that instead of, we should not have cheap signals, we should have costly signals. Mm. And so maybe you commit to something using a smart contract, or maybe you place a performance bonds. And so let's see. Um, and 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 we currently have a lot of. So I, I would say there's there's two kind of there's. Let me rephrase. You can do uh, you can do the signaling in different ways. If you do very cheap signaling, it doesn't mean anything because it's going to be exploited by bad actors, and so you're not going to you know you're not going to signal anything. You can have costly signaling that is costly for everyone, and that might be um, you know it used to be that banks, uh, for example, would have these big uh, marble uh, entrances and very very expensive. And the way the reason one of, one of the reasons they would do that is say, hey, we're not going to run away with the customers' money. We invested a lot in order to build this thing. Uh, we're not going anywhere, hmm. but that's that's a costly signal because in the end, you know, all of this, all of the work to uh, to put up this um, luxurious uh, place is not is not very helpful. And then there are signals which 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 are costly only if you uh, only if they're bad signals. So that you know, putting a performance bond, and the cost of capital for that is much uh, is much lower. Transaction cost can be lower, and so. That's a, that's a much better way of uh, of signaling things. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that the 
I mean, your answer there is very much in line with like um, Talib's skin in the game concept, where it's like, hey, if you're going to show something yep. to the world, you have to, if it goes well, you should be connected to it. If it goes well, if it goes poorly, you should be connected to it if it goes poorly. And if you're just like randomly signaling stuff and you only get positive benefits from the stuff that goes well for you, that's bad. You know, so like making sure that the, I think, costly signals, that's a great way to think about it. So I guess my final yep. question here, Arthur, is trying to connect, and this is a, a one more difficult question, maybe. <laughs> go ahead, How go ahead. You, <laughs> How would you think about um, – so if we think about the human governance game from the functional programming perspective in terms of like types or in terms of you know values or, or what have you, how do you kind of – are there ways that, you, ways that you would bring in the functional programming mindset into like human-style governance? And what would kind of those atoms be? What would those types be that you would kind of use when you pattern match um, the first into the second? <laughs> Oof. Uh, uh, I mean, the joke answer is don't expect people to change. Um, nice, immutable. <laughs> uh, no, but no, that's. Uh, let's see. How would that? Uh, how would you match one into the other? <laughs> that's a good question. So when I when I, I'm, I'm wondering, is the right paradigm is to think about. Uh, Functional programming or parallel programming, because parallel programming has multiple processes and that intercommunicate with each other. Sometimes they can't communicate. Sometimes they can be in conflict. So maybe that's a better uh, framework to think mm -hmm. about it. But it's not something I've given a lot of thought to. And so I don't think I'm. Um, I don't think. I'll, unfortunately, I don't think I'll have a uh, a good answer for that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the honestly, I do think that the. The immutable version of things is one good version, which is not that people are immutable because clearly everybody can change, but that, as you said, it was a joke, a joke answer. Um, but I think that there's a understanding for a given value slash variable, um, how, aka, you know, a given kind of person within this human level governance system, what are the things that, you know, make them change? What are the things that don't make them change? I'm reminded, actually, I'm, I'm connected to this, like, um, rationalist community, and um, there's this concept called double flux, where you're in a given conversation pattern with someone, you're actively trying to show to them um, your most, uh, the thing that you um, could most be changed on, that you're less, that you're the least sure about, and how you would change on it. So you're, it's kind of this way oh, yeah. when you're debating with people to not debate, but to try to say, hey, here's the thing that you could change the most. Can you change that? So I think that there's something in that, honestly, to what you're saying. Yeah, that's interesting. That is interesting. Um, it, 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 you know, this, this type of thing is great. It, it does, uh, um, it does um, uh, assume a lot of good face on the part of <laughs> the other, um, yeah. the other part of you having a, yeah. a conversation too. Because a lot of conversations are not really. So this is great if you're actually trying to uh, reach the truth. A lot of people are not necessarily interested in the truth, mm -hmm. and, and 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 sometimes rationally so. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I think that the good faith thing is something that I personally can be bad about, which is like assume everybody's doing it for the best t uh, purposes. And it's like, well, that's not always true. So in any case, Arthur, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for both exploring functional programming and human governance and the uh, combination between the two. Thank you very much. Have yeah. a good one. Great. Thanks, everybody. And uh, if you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash Reeslandmark. That's slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Great. Thanks and goodbye, everybody. focus on the auditory experience okay sounds good <laughs> yeah exactly we can we can whisper the entire time <laughs> one, one trick one, one trick i learned is that if you uh if you whisper and then you raise the volume you can get a um, a trailer like voice oh you know, that's interesting. Interesting. in a in a world <laughs> <laughs> that's funny okay boom perfect okay let's rock and roll